Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles. And I am Dr. Rebecca Elsalois. And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Baruch College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures. We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Latinx Visions. Bienvenidas, bienvenidos, bienvenides. Uh, today we have a conversation with poet, storyteller, and essayist Roberto Carlos Garcia that we're excited to share with you. This interview took place on October 7, 2023, via Zoom. Yes, welcome back, everyone. Uh, actually, in a sense, this episode is kind of like a follow-up in in a way to the season two episode that we did, Afro-Latinidad and Literature, Afro-Latinx Poetry, uh, in which along with We Are Owed by Ariana Brown and Love is Hard Work by Miguel Algarin, we discussed Garcia's poetry collection, Black Maybe, an Afro-Lyric. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode yet, we recommend going and checking it out after you're finished with this episode. We'll include a direct link in the show notes for easy access and searching. So before we start the interview, we will include a bit of background on Garcia, including his education, publications, awards, and other projects. And after the interview, we'll wrap up the episode with our thoughts on the conversation, along with some personal recommendations of specific poems from Garcia's anthology, What Can I Tell You? So as a little background, poet, storyteller, and essayist Roberto Carlos Garcia is a self-described Sancocho of provisions from the Harlem Renaissance, the Spanish poets of 1929, the Black Arts Movement, the New Yorkian School, and the Modernist. You definitely got that vibe from him just through the conversation, right? <laughs> yeah, we can see like all those intertexts coming uh, together in the in the interview, definitely. He writes extensively about the Afro-Latinx and Afro-diasporic experience. His work has been published widely in places like Poetry Magazine, NACLA, Poets and Writers, The Root, The Breakbeat Poets, Volume 4, Latinx, The Root, Gawker, Bettering American Poetry, Volume 3, and many more. He's also the author of five books, including four poetry collections, Melancholia, published in 2016, Black Maybe, an Afro-Lyric from 2018, Elegies, published in 2020, and the recently published What Can I Tell You? The Selected Poems of Roberto Carlos Garcia, which was published in 2022. The fifth book, which is an essay collection entitled Traveling Freely, is set to be published in 2024. Garcia is the founder of Get Fresh Books Publishing, a literary nonprofit and cooperative press. He's also a native New Yorker and holds an MFA in poetry and poetry and translation from Drew University and has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize, which is an award for small press publications in poetry, fiction and creative nonfiction. So we'll keep this short and let Roberto tell us a bit more about himself and his work. All right. Bienvenido, bienvenido, Roberto. Welcome. We're really happy to have you here. Thank you for joining us at the Latin Exhibition Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a real honor. Yeah. So we are, you know, we're really excited to get into the conversation. So we'll just dive in with our questions. Um, and the first question is, you know, nothing, nothing big. How did you find your way to writing poetry? Like, what are your poetic origins? That's a great question. It's such a roundabout story. Um, I used to, I used to write comic books when I was a kid with a very good friend of mine. He lived across the street from me, and so we would read comic books and watch all kinds of um, cartoons and things like that. And so I would just, you know, make up my own adventures. And a lot of times we would play in, in his backyard and we were just very creative. We had these imaginations and and then one day we decided to, OK, I'll write them. You draw them. I'll draw some comic books. And from there, as as I got older, the stories just 
changed, you know, they became a little more mature as the cartoons got more serious, the comic books got more serious. But then also I was writing song lyrics because, you know, my grandmother, may she rest in peace, she had all these awesome bolero records that she would listen <laughs> to. Nice. Yeah, on the weekends. And so, you know, I was also writing songs. And, you know, I went from writing... uh you know, like love songs <laughs> to, to writing hip hop lyrics because then hip hop became very popular. And so all throughout, uh, I'm going to say junior high and high school, you know, I was, I was part of a band that we were trying to put together because this is the birth of the grunge rock scene, you know, Nirvana. Mm -hmm. Oh know. yeah. That's us too. <laughs> right. We're from so, that era. <laughs> so, you know, but I, you know, I had a foot in both worlds, so to speak, because I was also writing, you know, hip hop lyrics and hip house music. There was a form of house music that had rapping in it. Uh, I think mm -hmm. of fast Freddy right, was one very popular. Uh, Two Without Hats was another group. There was all these, um, you know, Black and, and Latinx hip house artists that were creating. Mm -hmm. like, there's a song I'm sure you probably recognize. Even you never say foi. Even you never say me la paga. We were so deep into that music because um, my friends were DJs. And so, you know, I guess over time, one thing led to another. And as my lyrics for hip hop music became more politically conscious, it naturally led me towards writing poems about it. Nice. Because there were certain uh there were certain rappers who were so poetic in their delivery and in the ways mm -hmm. that they communicated. And so it just became one more thing to write. You know, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why I, I love writing poetry, but I can also write essays and fiction and more experimental stuff, because I was just always dabbling, always trying to find a way. You know, we didn't have all the distractions that young people have today. We had to entertain ourselves. We had to, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. use, uh, use our, our heads and entertain ourselves. And so, you know, I just kept writing poems over the years. And one day I decided to take it very seriously and go study it in college, you know, <laughs> on the recommendation <laughs> of a, one of my creative writing professors and once i started to take it seriously you know the rest is history the mm -hmm. opportunities kept coming up and opportunities kept coming up and i got encouragement you know from some wonderful poets along the way that that told me you know you you have some talent you know keep writing believe in yourself and that's and awesome yeah it was very very it's hard to believe it when you know what i mean when you're um mm -hmm. when you're first start, starting out it's so hard to um, to accept and say probably, yeah, I'm a writer. Yeah, I'm a poet. Uh, but eventually I, I did own it, you know, and here Good I am. You. Although I am curious to see, like, you know, I, I love uh, if you didn't have a comic or a graphic novel come out now that you're more evolved in your writing style. <laughs> there are manuscripts. I'm a big fan. So, you know, well, that's, thank you. Thank that's you. my you know, if I could take your poetry and put it to like a genre that I or a medium rather that I really love, I, I think that would be really cool. So <laughs> um, we, you know, we read your most recent poetry collections, kind of a, a volume that takes from all of your previous collections. So we were curious about what inspired you to sort of create that collection. And if there was like any sort of particular thematic through line that you envisioned as you chose the poems for that collection. So funny story. And and I'm, I'm also a translator. So I went in my graduate program, I, I studied translation. And I've uh, translated a bunch of Pablo Neruda poems because I, I love Neruda's uh, work. And it's really funny that every time I'm about to publish the translations that I did of uh, La Altura de Machu Picchu, right? I took Machu Picchu. Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> every time I'm about to tr to publish that translation, the, I guess the owners of the, the estate or the rights to his poetry, you know, they tell me, well, a different group owns the rights and unfortunately no one else can publish it at this time 
And so before my first book was published, I was going, you know, a, a publisher had agreed to publish the translations. And then we got word from his, his uh, agency that we couldn't get permission. And so the publisher said, well, do you have anything else? And luckily I did. I had my first poetry collection, Melancholia, and they published it. So fast forward, uh, my my publisher, Edward Vidaure at Flower Song, was about to publish the translations of Heights of Machu Picchu. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. We tried to get permission and they said, sorry, somebody has the rights, so you can't publish it. And and um, you know, we had a conversation. Uh, and he asked me, you know, what do you have as far as poetry? And I, I was like, well, I mean, I'm working on essays, I'm working on fiction, so I'm and I'm I'm probably gonna be stepping away from poetry for a little while. And you know, he said, well, why don't you put out a selected so that people can find all of your work in one place in the meantime? And, you know, I was very resistant uh, to the idea at first because, you know, I feel like I should have made five or six books or something before I do something like that, you know, but because I, I, I publish with small presses, I like the freedom that it gives me. And, you know, I like when people are engaged with what it is I'm doing in my work, you know, and so I said, uh, he, he convinced me. I said, all right, let's, you know, let's do it. Let's select the best or what we have from these three books. And and this way we we can leave folks with something, right? And and we can, um, and then I can run off and focus on novels and short story collections and essay collections. <laughs> and, and comic books. books. <laughs> yes, yes. You, you know, it's, it's funny you say that about the comic books and the graphic novels um, because... I do, you know, I do have a few manuscripts, graphic novel manuscripts uh, that I'm I'm working on. Yeah, there's a lot to do. So, yeah, I'm very interested in getting into that. Um, but but anyway, that's how I came to the selected poems um, as a as a way also to provide, um, I guess a a blueprint or a, a snapshot for people of my trajectory as a poet, also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because when I was when you know, when I was publishing a lot of the poems that I was writing about anti-blackness in a Latinx culture, about anti-blackness in Dominican culture in particular, you know, people didn't want to touch that. They just mm-hmm. for whatever reason, even even the even publications that feature uh, Latinx writers and poets, et cetera, they weren't interested in in that. Uh, and so I was very fortunate that the 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 author Kiese Lehman. He was an editor at the time at the now defunct Gawker. Okay. And I submitted mm-hmm. my my poem, my uh, essay. It's titled now Black Maybe, but it was originally titled Hiding Black Behind the Ears on mm-hmm. the uh, racism in Haiti. You know, and and you know he loved it, and they published it, and then you know that essay was like semi-viral, right? <laughs> and it, mm-hmm. it really opened the door it really opened the door and then there was interest in the manuscript and then I was able to publish the book, you know, and it took off. But even then um, there was a lot of pushback because, you know, there was a lot of, why are you painting us in the negative light? There's no racism in Latin America. We're all, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I'm like, give me a break, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but, but, you know, it's, it, it was interesting to join you know, uh, a, a group of Afro-Latina scholars who have been writing about this in academia for a while and getting books published, and to tr- and then to try to bring that message through poetry, hopefully, you know, somewhat into the mainstream. And I think we've seen we've seen some progress, you know, over the few years. Uh, you know, to be able to go to the University of Notre Dame and there's an entire conference on Afro-Latinx poetry and, and literature. I thought that was fantastic rarely would we you know see uh something like that but Francisco Aragón did a phenomenal job setting that up and then Kiani Antigua at Dartmouth College also picked up the baton and so we you know we're starting to see a little more of it mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. a lot of institutions are still very problematic and so um, I love Kiani I, I took classes with her in grad school oh, <laughs> way wonderful. back when yeah <laughs> she's uh she's amazing her energy is and her creativity uh, and her productivity are yes. just inspiring, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> inspiring. Yeah. 
you already started answering our next question. As it is oh. precisely about about uh, Afro Latinidad and how one thing that you make clear throughout all your poetry collections is that uh, Afro Latina Afro Latinx identity is uh, multifaceted. So, can you expand on that? Tell us about the how those complexities of the of Afro Latinidad show up in in this uh, anthology. And how do you see like the three collections talking to each other regarding that topic? It's interesting because I, I, I think that my experience, you know, being born in New York City, living in New York City and then living in New Jersey, it gives me a, a unique perspective because, you know, one of the things that you know I've heard is I'm, I'm writing about this Afro-Latin experience, but it's very much through a, a Black lens, mm -hmm. right? It's a black lens. Why? Because uh, blackness is centered. Mm -hmm. It's not this. There's this idea, you know, that you're a Latino and you're black, right? So as if mm -hmm. Latinidad exempts you from something connected to blackness, right? As if culturally, mm -hmm. some kind of exemption or exception to being un afrodescendiente because mm -hmm. you're part of this Hispanic culture or Hispanophone, right? Mm -hmm. right? It's, And so I don't I don't really agree with that. I think that's nonsense. I think that you can pull, you know, un Afro-Colombiano, un Afro-Boricua, un Afro-Dominicano, un Afro-Cubano, and they will have vastly different experiences, but there'll be a lot of things that are similar or exactly the same because they're Afro-Descendientes. Right. And so wherever we are, we're, we're Black first, mm -hmm. you know? Whether you say black, you say afrodescendiente, negro, whatever you want to say. And for me, it's very important that I be uncompromising and unflinching in that, in, in the work. And that there can be no avoidance of of, uh, of facing racism. Because mm -hmm. as, we, as we well know, in Latinx culture, racism is so customary is so customary that even when it is blatantly happening in front or, of you to someone or to you, there's people who just will not, you know, they won't accept that it's true. Mm -hmm. So something like that really requires this, this adamant commitment to Black self-love and, you know, the, the acceptance. So I think I, I, one of the things I love about that Césaire quote that I, you know, I have in Black maybe is the acceptance of it, right? understanding of it and it, it's something to be to be proud of um because it's a beautiful survivor's history on this side of the planet right it's one of the great, mm -hmm. greatest survival stories i think in the history of humanity because from this situation of of the transatlantic slave trade and this horrific horrific experience you know, uh, Afro-descendientes, whether it's African-American, Afro-Latinx, Caribbean, or even Afro-Europeans have shaped this world on this side of the planet, culturally, socially, politically, in ways that they try to hide from us. And mm -hmm. only through a radical self-love and acceptance can we go out there and realize this fact that, you know, everything is like, We're the root. We're the we're the stem. We're the we're the heart of so much. So that's why it's so important. So you mentioned a quote uh, from Black Maybe, but there was also a quote that you had in What Can I Tell You that really stood out to me. It was a Gwendolyn Brooks quote. I am interested in telling my particular truth as I have seen it. And yes. so I was just curious, like, how do you ensure that you're able to do this with your own poetry? And are there any poems in particular where it was maybe easier or more difficult to accomplish this? So I, I like that quote because no two Afrodescendiente experiences are alike. And mm -hmm. until the more, whether it be poems, the more... Uh, novels, short stories, essays, movies, plays, you know, whatever it might mm -hmm. be, the more art we create that tells the story of those unique experiences, I think the better it'll be for us to understand each other. The easier it'll be, you know, for a Black man from Mississippi to understand a Black man or, or woman from Trinidad and Tobago and from Cuba. 
because hopefully with, within our stories, you know, I'm a big Pan-Africanist, right? I'm a big believer <laughs> in this idea of negritude, right? That's a series mm-hmm. was proposing. I know that, you know, a lot of people try to poo-poo it and, you know, I, I, often, <laughs> I often say I'm I'm trapped between Césaire and Glissant, right? Because Césaire uh-huh. is so committed to this idea of this unifying force of negritude, and Glissant is is so committed to this idea of power in our difference, right? Mm-hmm. I think that makes sense. It does, mm-hmm. and I think that neither one has to be mutually exclusive, right? I think that there's this mm-hmm. in the combination of both, but. The only way I can be truthful in my art is to speak from my experience. And it's very difficult because even though the poems are not, let's say, I know they they sound autobiographical, but I think that there's just enough of me in there that people recognize these experiences in their own lives. Mm-hmm. And so they can say, well, wow, this is the experience that this poet is putting forth based in a Dominican cultural or a Dominican American cultural context. But wow, it's so similar to mine as an Afro-Cuban or an Afro-Borico and Afro-Colombian, right? Which is what I hear when I go out and do readings and, and you know, people come up to me. Building off of that, I think like you have also defined yourself uh, as a lyric poet Mm-hmm. And in this regard, and I want to uh, present a quote that you wrote, uh, many of my poems, you said, have a first person point of view, what you were just talking about, uh, led by an immediate and a steady eye. You see, I'm a, a storyteller. I have something to tell you, to share with you, my interior life, my experience, that of my emotion, my music. Yet you clarified this. I has the ability to be social, unstable, aggrieved, one among many. Yeah, that mm. one among many yeah. is really powerful. Can you unpack for us that idea of this unstable lyrical voice? I, I got to bring it back to hip hop because, um, as we know, in, in <laughs> hip hop music, in particular, the braggadocio aspect of it, mm-hmm. uh, the MC creates a kind of persona mm-hmm. that is capable of being this superhuman figure, right, that will defeat another MC or that can endure, you know, stories of street life, if that's what they're telling, um, or whom can be this politically active or engaged person, right? And so lyric and first-person narrative, I think, is one of our oldest and most primal ways, I think, of communicating and expressing ourselves. And I think that when we're reading a novel, as we go on and that first person narrator continues saying, I, if we are engaged with the text and they have us hooked, we become that I, we experience those things, we feel those. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the I, you know, is, it's, it's, it's uh, I love that first person perspective for that case, but also because you have to interrogate your own experience first. Right. And this is something that I I learned from reading James Baldwin and just uh, kind of being obsessed with all things Baldwin, because he he was in his work. He is so in interrogative. Right. He's so he goes so deep in his investigation, not just of himself, but people in general and those closest to him even. Which uh, at first, early in my poetic career, was a challenge because you know we have this this philosophy, you know, lo que pasa en casa no se cuenta, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, <laughs> like mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. have this, right? But in order to tell a truth about who we are and what we experience, we do have to interrogate those. We do have to ask questions about ourselves, but then also the people around us who love us and we love, and that first person medium is a great way to demonstrate that, I don't know if I want to call it courage, but what goes into that investigation, if I'm making sense, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. Is the the reader uh, completing the poem as well? In a sense. It, There's an element of the reader uh, responding. Yeah, yes. finding uh, yes. themselves, herself, himself, yeah, within the poem and adding their own, like, uh, uh, memories, uh, references to what you're presenting, right? Yeah, 
And I think you do it in such a way that like for me as someone who is not Latina myself, like even reading some of these poems really like connecting with certain elements of them. While I don't have that same firsthand experience, you know, there were definitely some poems that really jumped out to me and like, you know, had me emotional as, I, as I'm reading through them. So I think that way of bringing in the eye also makes it a little more global while at the same time not erasing the specificity of the experience. Yeah, you know, I was taught early on that the specific becomes universal. It's very paradoxical because as we know, when something is generalized, it's hard to sink your teeth into it. It's hard to connect to it. But the more specific an experience is, the more details that are there, mm -hmm. then it's more realistic. It feels more authentic. And people can connect to what is detailed and what is authentic. It mirrors, it reflects. I, I think you used the word earlier, multifaceted. And yeah. I think that as long as it has those multiple facets of specificity and detail, you can connect to some part of it. Mm -hmm. I've had um, other writers like from Egypt. I've had writers from uh, places like Thailand and Bali. There's where there's a lot of colorism, in particular, because there's so many different gradations, right? Of, of anti-blackness is global, yeah. <laughs> it's global. It is so global, <laughs> and and they they recognize the experiences and the intrapersonal racism that mm. happens, be it on a familial level or be it you know friendship or professional. They recognize that, and you know I've had people come up to me and say, you know, even. I'm not Dominican, I'm, you know, but I, I understand that experience, what you're talking about. And so I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to that. And, and I'm glad that uh, one of my, one of my friends and, and former professors, Pat Rosal, you know, he uses this expression, I'm glad the poems still have legs. I'm glad that they <laughs> still, they still can walk around <laughs> minds and hearts. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about walking around. I would like you to talk about the importance of the vernacular in your work. Yeah, you recently wrote an essay on Willy Perdomo's uh, poetics, but also you reflect on your own poetics. And yeah. uh, I would like you to kind of like uh, tell us a little bit on your conception of the vernacular. Yeah, and vernacular currency in a specific, and how you connected to this lineage of other Afro-Latinx poets like Perdomo or John Murillo, Aracelis Gourmet, among others that you constantly mention and put yourself in conversation in your uh, in your collections. So I'll, t I'll tell you guys a funny story, and and I think that it's funny the way we we carry internalized racism or the way that we believe these narratives, right, that we're taught. My undergraduate experience was full of, very, of Eurocentric professors, very, very Eurocentric mm -hmm. literary study. You know, Brit Lit 1, 2, American Lit 1 and 2. Not a lot of um, survey courses or samplings on African-American literature, Latinx literature, Asian literature, not, like none of that. It was very Eurocentric. Um, and so I left undergrad really lacking. I had a hole in, in, in my study of literature, right? And so my poems began to change. They, they started to sound really bad, right? Just to see what we They started taking on these, the shape and form of a lot of these uh, older European, you know, poets. So that uh, by the time I got to my creative writing program, you know, it was, it was just bad. I was, I was very lucky that I had uh, Gerald Stern. I had this, I don't know if you guys have heard of Gerald Stern, this magnificent, famous poet. He passed away recently at the, at the age of 90 something. So he lived a wonderful life. And we're sitting in this workshop, you know, and we're, we're going through this poem and, you know, he looks at me and he says, you know, I have some problems with this poem and I, <laughs> I hope that that's okay, you know? I said, please, I'm here to learn, just whatever, I don't care, you know, and he proceeds to like, you know, she's shredding the poem. <laughs> and I, you know, I remember after that moment, you know, I, I remember the first time I heard, you know, Willy Perdomo's where a nickel costs a dime. And 
you know, I was going through corporate America. I worked in corporate America for a while. You know, I had to, you know, I, I had to code switch a lot. I really mm. do. You know, here's this kid from the streets who's got this heavy street accent, you know, a lot of slang. And I had mm -hmm. to like code switch a lot in order to survive in that environment. And so I'd kind of left some part of myself behind. It was hidden away. And so through realizing, hey, you know, I have nothing to be ashamed of. This is who I am. This is how I talk. The world is trying to steal my language every day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I need to embrace with that. And and through uh, reconnecting with the work of Willy Perdomo, the New Rican Poet School, my old, my old hip hop songs, my lyrics and stuff like that. I, you know, I said, this is how I, this is who I am. This is how I sound. And even though I have this love of imagery and I have this love of the sounds that the Spanish language can produce. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. And the way that the Spanish language, at least Dominican Caribbean Spanish, let me put it that way, Caribbean Spanish can be so imagistic and descriptive. And can and can signify almost in the same style that African American vernacular does, right? Mm -hmm, so once, mm -hmm. once you start to analyze it, it's so similar. It was very freeing, but you know, I was shackled because of you know I was trying to survive and all this stuff, and I'm trying to make it in corporate America, and you know, I had kind of built up this weird wall around you know who I was, so that it, it they, I wouldn't be punished for it in corporate America, right? And mm -hmm. You know, I had to like rediscover myself and rediscover my vernacular, my language. And that then became something very sacred to me. Not just to say, hey, I will never let go of this again. I will always hang on to who I am and how I sound and, and what I say. As a matter of fact, in the essay collection, there's there's an essay uh, uh, which I, I travel to Spain with my family, you know, and I, I kind of part of the essay is me meditating on, okay, how am I going to sound to these Spanish people when I start talking, right? Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, but then also the the internal politics that we have of who speaks the best Spanish, right? And who speaks Spanish. Oh, yeah. Which is also like a thing, right? In Latinx culture. So, you know, to make a long story short, the importance of that vernacular, again, to get back to this point of authenticity and to this, this point of, uh, specificity. There is a power in our language because I think that throughout our experience as colonized people, we are always reshaping the master's tools and making them our own so that we don't we don't lose what we don't know we've lost, but we sense, right? So I'm sure that those early enslaved Africans all across here as time goes on and they're further and further away from their African culture, tradition, and languages, somehow this new language will have an aspect of that. Somehow this new culture practice will have an aspect of that, right? Yeah. And so the way that on a street corner we can engage and speak in a conversation that even another American may not understand, I think these are traditions that have been passed down that keep, you know, linguistic traditions that have been passed down and continue to change uh, and take shape. And I think we need to continue to embrace that. Maybe you guys will remember the name of this scholar who said that what we need in the Caribbean is a whole new language so that we don't speak English, French, or Spanish. I always forget <laughs> that scholar's name, but... Um, I, I, I don't know. I would I would trust <laughs> Rojo to know this. <laughs> yeah, I, no? always, I always forget. <laughs> But I think that vernacular is one way in which we try to accomplish this, mm -hmm. right? And and just to to illustrate, you know, what I mean. Recently, uh, I was at a book party. I'm, I'm also a publisher, and so we were throwing a book party uh, for the poet Mercy Tellis Bukhari. And there was a gentleman who had gotten on a boat from Senegal sailed to Central America, ended up in Nicaragua, and from Nicaragua with his family, joined a group of people walking to the United States. Wow. Yeah. That's and a then, journey. <laughs> that is a journey. Yeah. It, you know, on multiple levels, it's so interesting to me because when we think about the transatlantic slave trade in the Middle Passage, that was a journey that was taken by force. 
And here there are people, you know, fleeing certain conditions, you know, on the continent of Africa, now taking this perilous journey by choice, which is just wild to me. But mm -hmm. he makes it to Texas. He's put on a bus to New York. And there he is, um, you know, asking for money or do he asked me, do I have a job for him? In any event, I said, I'll buy you some food. We go into a restaurant. Uh, he's from Senegal. He speaks French. We're communicating through the Google Translator, basically. And there's a woman in the restaurant and she's Nigerian. And, you know, her English mm -hmm. is better than his. And we're trying to communicate with each other. And it's so difficult. And I say, man, look at the African diaspora. We have Nigeria, we have Senegal, we have the Caribbean. We have this African diaspora, you know, all of us looking at each other's faces, we're all black and we can't talk to each other. The brokenness of diaspora, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that that was just, you know, I thought that that was just crazy. But in any event, I would, you know, I would, I would be thrilled to see a language we could all learn and speak that's not tied to the colonial powers languages. But I think that the vernacular that we invent somehow is us trying to get to that, right? But somehow yeah. it's not necessarily forgetting ourselves and giving in completely to the language of capitalism, which is, you know, very mm -hmm. propagandistic. Yeah. Yeah. You have talked about uh, Glissant, you have talked about Césaire, you have talked about uh, many uh, theorists uh, today, James Baldwin, right? And I was thinking that in all of your connections, you also present yourself as a theorist. Yeah, you present your poetics to the reader in one way or another. An example of this could be your exploration of the term melancholia in the book of the same title, or your examination of the Dominican and Latinx anti-blackness in Black Maybe that you referenced, uh, that you were talking about before, or your definition of the mixtape that is very connected to hip hop and to the vernacular, right? So what is the function of theory in your work? And um, what type of engagement do you search with the reader by explicitly stating your poetics? You know, I, I, I thank you for such a compliment because I, I really <laughs> admire theorists. You know, I can't. There's some theorists, you know, who I I'm still translating in my own mind, right? Mm -hmm. I just I think it's such important work to think about these things because it's a luxury that we're not always given, mm -hmm. right? I think in this capitalistic world, I think marginalized people are always working, 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 or focusing on survival and not necessarily given that space and privilege to theorize, right? Everything has to be so concrete. I enjoy theory because of the avenues it opens up and the ways it allows me to think of things differently. But I hesitate to call myself a theorist because there's people who are doing it so much better than I am. You know, there's so many wonderful, so many wonderful scholars, you know, I I feel blessed that Dr. Maricel Moreno and, and you know, Dr. Silvio Torres Ayan would, would even grace the pages of my book, right? But then also you have, you know, you have Loria Garcia Peña, Yomaya, yeah. you know, Figueroa Vasquez. You, you just have Tanya Kateri Hernandez, you know, you just have all of these wonderful scholars. And I think, that I, I'm not capable of doing that work in that way, but I do believe that the theory they're writing is speaking to the poetics that I'm putting together. And I think that my poetics, because I think of the relationability of the experiences, is also infused into their theory. Mm -hmm. So I think there's this wonderful kind of symbiosis maybe occurring between out of poets and scholars of the Afro-Latinx Latinx tradition and the African-American tradition, obviously, and the Afro-Caribbean tradition. And so it's food. Yeah, it's really interesting because some people like create artificial borders around those two areas. Yes. And one thing that you do is say, you know, no, actually, we can talk yes. theoretically, but we can also do our poetics and we can talk our vernacular. Yes, right. So I, I right. think that gesture is important of, of not believing in 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 those borders. The walls that academia would put up between them have traditionally been yeah. there. Yeah. Right? Where yeah. academia would look askance at poets or look askance at the novelists, say theory is where it is, right? But mm -hmm, we understand mm -hmm. that those, you know, those borders are uh, or those barriers are artificial. 
and they work together, right? They complement one another. I, and, I, and I think that that's becoming more explicit now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this wave of uh, this wave of Latinx, Afro-Latinx, Afro-Caribbean theory that we're seeing, that symbiosis is becoming more explicit. I, I hesitate to call myself a theorist for that reason because there's so there's so much work that goes into it that I'm not necessarily doing. I'm speaking through certain experiences and investigations as opposed to uh, this empirical evidence and research and like years and years, and years of slow burn, right? Like 10 years mm-hmm. of research on a book, et cetera. So that, you know, out of respect, I think, for, for what theorists uh, and those theorists and scholars are doing, you know, I always hesitate to call myself a, a theorist, but the work definitely feeds what I'm doing. Not only as a poet, okay, but as a Black man in this world, I'm always looking for confirmation on things. Hey, I'm not crazy because this world will make you think you're crazy sometimes for seeing the things you see and Mm -hmm. seeing the things you experience. There's this, it's like a practice of negation that, you know, the white supremacist culture engages in of negating the seriousness of your experiences of negating the experiences of the uh, discrimination, the deprivation. And so what a lot of the theory really allows me to do is say, yes, okay, yep, I'm right. I know, I know this confirmation. is confirmation. This is confirmation, <laughs> you know? And I think it's great. I, I think it's great. So, yeah. And and just like including the voices of all these individuals in your work is again, like I was thinking this idea of lifting up these other voices and sharing them, uh, amplifying their voices as well, which mm-hmm. I imagine is something that is a part of your work. You you mentioned in passing that uh, you have a publishing company. It's uh, Get Fresh Books Publishing, right? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of this project, uh, your ethics behind it and the work ethos within this cooperative press? It's, you know, it's about in- inclusivity, obviously, and creating opportunities, but it's also about trying to create a model. You want to talk about theory. It's about trying to create a model that's not necessarily like this, the capitalistic model of publishing that exists now. And so it's this work in progress of always trying to figure out how to, to survive. You know, our, our, and I, I, always, I always preface by saying this, that I'm not trying to cast aspersions on publishing companies who charge submission fees and who operate on that model because that income allows them to pay people and to operate and do a lot of different things. If anything, I'm I'm casting ex, uh, aspersions on you know a country, a political engine, an economic philosophy that does not believe that the arts have value. And does not and does not make it easy to publish books and things like that, and then to get that art in the hands of other people. And so, you know, our, that is our model where we have an open submission period. People can submit, and we want to publish Latinx, Afro Latinx, Afro Caribbean poets. You know, we if you look at our at our roster, uh, uh, you know, I'll just give you guys evidence of this. We were at the Brooklyn Book Festival. Someone came up to our table. They, they saw our books and they said, can you point to the male, the, the books written by males on this table? And I said, you know, I was like, oh my. <laughs> very specific. <Here's> somebody, right. <laughs> you wonder, are they going to challenge this? Or... <laughs> yes, yeah. Here's Where is this going? <laughs> who, you know, he's trying to instigate because our table is, you know, it's about 85%, you know, women or women identifying authors or, you know, authors from the LGBTQ plus community, you know, black, et cetera. And so that was his beef, you know, and I said, well, here are two books written by men, right? I said, but um, I said, you know, you can go anywhere and find a book by a man. They make up 77% of the people published, you know, mm-hmm. and I said, and heterosexual white men, I said, like you, and, you know, and I said, no, not but I think that that number could come down. You could It could go down to 50% and you guys would still be way ahead, but it would be a lot more inclusive, you know? So that's one of the reasons why I started it. That's one of the reasons, you know, um, in conversations with a bunch of uh, fellow poets from graduate school and discussions and conversations, I said, let me, let me try this and see how, you know, how long it will go. 
And so, you know, how does that show up in my own writing, this idea of not just inclusivity, but collaboration, right? I'm a big believer and I was always taught that literature is a conversation, right? And that it's walking into a room and now you're, you join a conversation with people. And so I'm sure there's there's a lot of individual discoveries and things in my work, but there's also a lot that has come from engaging with the work of others that has allowed me to discover, you know, how to communicate my own experiences through the art. And having those voices present in my work, you know, allows me to, I don't know if it's to say thank you, but to acknowledge that conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, I like that. So since our podcast is called Latin Exhibitions, we have a, a question about visions, precisely. And uh, the last line of your poem, I want to like uh, refer to one of your poems, Variation on Lines of Dialogue from Bill Murray's uh, Groundhog Day, says, My yesterdays are my today, every day. I can't trust tomorrow. Can you tell us about this conception of time and maybe going against this poetic affirmation? How do you envision Black futures? I'm very much a pessimist. (laughs) 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 Let me just start by saying that. And I I think if you read my work, you can see that. You know, I'm not necessarily interested in happy endings or neat resolutions. I don't know uh, what tomorrow will bring as a student of human nature also i have these i have these two books that i'm reading and a friend of mine i'm looking at the title one is pathogenesis how eight plagues shaped the course of history right and the other mm-hmm. one is the end of eden and you know and how the climate chaos is taking shape and what it means mm-hmm. i'm very much a realist and i think that when i think about you know the future of colonized people you know, and that includes, you know, indigenous, African, you name it. Okay. And I see that the colonizer in the state will only continue to double down on everything. Whatever does happen when the when the when the bow breaks, so to speak, which I'm sure will, you know, I don't it's not gonna be pretty. <laughs> it's not gonna be pretty. And um and I just I guess I'm trying to do everything I can so that if it happens while I'm here, to be prepared for that. So that, like my ancestors, I can survive it. I don't know what it may hold. I mean, in my deepest heart and soul, I I really would love to see a bloodless revolution where, you know, capitalism goes Mm -hmm. away, equality comes forth, and all of these wonderful things happen. But my focus is just on being as prepared as possible for whatever may come, for getting through today, you know, Mm -hmm. and being as ready as possible for whatever might come. um, Because, you know, we just never know. We just never know. And and (laughs) one example is, you know, never in a million years that I think that, you know, the blabbering buffoon that is Donald Trump would get anywhere near the presidency. And, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) So that's why, you know, people say I'm very pessimistic, you know, (laughs) but I tend to consider, I know, I think maybe I'm a realist. It's not that I don't have hope. I do. But um, again, I'm just preparing for what really happens. It's also an awareness. I I feel like you're also like presenting an awareness of history, the history of, as you were saying, the uh, yeah, of the concept of the human, but also of <laughs> yeah. yeah, of of, <laughs> of the yeah. history of the African diaspora. And, yeah. yeah, many they, people argue that the the apocalypse started like centuries ago. Oh, yeah, for black yes. people, it started many centuries ago. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and it's it's an ongoing it's an ongoing kind of apocalypse, right? Mm-hmm. And so. It's, you know, it's so important. It's so important to be ready for that reason and and to be a student of history. Because if you if you dig right, if you don't just accept the narrative that's presented to you and and you dig and you see what the reality of history is, you know, there should be no way that you can go through life with these uh, blinders. Right. And I don't be mm-hmm. optimistic people. I think this, so we need all kinds. <laughs> right. 
I think there's also a difference between being like overly optimistic and having or or just optimistic in general and having yeah. blinders, right? Because one, yes. you're like, yes, I acknowledge what has happened, but I'm hoping that we can make some of these changes. But, right. you know, yeah, I can also see that side where you go, huh? Well, we haven't done it yet, and we've been around for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, that's that's you know kind of where I'm at. And um... unrelated, kind of related, uh, book recommendation for you. Uh, it's called yeah. "The Storm Before the Storm." I don't oh, know man. if you've read that. I have uh, not. The Storm Before the Storm, but I'm writing it down right now. Yeah, um, it's about the like the fall of the Roman Empire, and there's a lot of. Uh, a lot of parallels. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. A absolutely. lot of parallels. We could do a whole podcast just about that, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, anyway, um, we we wanted to thank you for joining us today. I, we really appreciate you coming on here and talking with us. You know, we got to talk about Black Maybe in an earlier episode that we did, but uh, to hear your voice firsthand um, and sharing your your perspective on things was really appreciated. But before we let you go, is there anything that you want to plug for us? And also, where can our listeners find you and your work? Take, you know, keep an eye out for the essay collection. I think it's uh, I think it's going to be very engaging. It should come out in the fall of 2024. And if you like poetry and you want, you know, you you want to continue to hear marginalized voices, um, check out Get Fresh Books. You know, mm -hmm. we're doing some wonderful work. We've been around for seven years. We're a nonprofit and it really is a labor of love that, we, you know, we do it for the love of poetry. It's me and a very small team, you know, of interns and, and, and wonderful people. So, you know, check us out. Awesome. Thank you so much. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Muchas gracias. <laughs> You you guys are doing wonderful work. And, you know, I tune in to the podcast and you gave me a new short story writer uh, to listen to. Um, what is her name? So I, I, I've caught COVID twice. And so the long COVID that I deal with sometimes is foggy brain and then my memory, the, the like yeah. you know, remembering things. And so, mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. but in any event, I, I love the show and, and I'm just so glad it's available. You know, because I remember a time when we didn't have that. So, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Maybe you're talking about Amina Gautier. Yes, exactly. Yes. yes. No, she's yes. wonderful. She's wonderful. Listening, uh, listening to her talk about the genesis of her stories and in her experience mm -hmm. with publishing. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is, this is so wonderful for people to hear. People who are trying to put yeah. Other people who who are looking at the big bright lights of um, big publishers and things like mm -hmm. that, recognize that there are other alternatives, and that's you know I was like yes, that's why I started Get Fresh Books because there are mm -hmm. alternatives. There are people who are looking for your specific kind of work and aren't trying to change you or change that work. We're well. making connections here too, y'all. <laughs> yeah. Reach out to each other. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. I will. I think I definitely will. We definitely appreciate your work and we appreciate the work you're doing with Get Fresh Books. And yeah, it's been like really great talking to you. <laughs> Thank you. Wow, what a fantastic opportunity to be able to speak with one of the poets that we had covered in a previous episode, right? I mean, I always appreciate the passion that authors and creators bring to these conversations. So like having that previous episode and this to complement one another is really cool. Again, please listen them together. Yeah, it's a good it's a good combo. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I was fascinated to hear Roberto talk about his journey to poetry. You know, just like many artists and creators, he put it into practice from an early age. And I think that this is key, right? He had encouragement that kept him going and he worked at it and he got there. Um, and he's still working at his craft. He was open to learning. He wanted to become a better writer. And, you know, I think the way he discusses that in the conversation really, uh, really shines a light on that work. And honestly, I definitely hope that he gets to do some sort of comic or graphic novel someday because that would be really cool to see. <laughs> I also got a kick out of his 
like pessimist realist approach to life that he was saying because well it can come across as dark i i think it's important to recognize that you know everything is not sunshine and rainbows and that we really need to acknowledge all the facets of life in this world and and recognize both yeah at the same time uh he defended his commitment to black love to mm -hmm. an african culture marginalized voices and afro descendants everywhere and that radical self-love already implies an affirmative vision that is palpable in his poems and the publishing project he leads. I particularly love Roberto's ideas of literature and poetry as a conversation and a reflection or theorization about the losses, maneuvers, and reshapings of diaspora. Uh, his impression of the West stealing his language away was very powerful as well because it positions the vernacular as sacred. Yeah, I really like that um, as well, because it's giving validity to voices that have been silenced for so long. So, you know, we read his his most recent collection, right, that takes some selected poems from each of his first three books. Were there any for you, Rojo, that really stood out to you that resonated with you for some in some way? Yeah, as a father of two children, yeah, and, and the child myself of divorced parents, the poem Elegy for Bill Withers uh, touched me a lot. Uh, this is part of the collection, but it's also uh, in particular as far from elegies. Yeah, in it, the poetic voice talks about the everlasting connection and joy he experiences with his daughter. It is a bittersweet but very authentic poem. It describes how the end of the parents' relationship is burning as acid burns, quote-unquote, waiting on their daughter and dragging her joy down. The poem proceeds to tell how he takes her, uh, her daughter out one day and they move from the tense handoff in the court language to the father's car where soul star Bill Withers' classic son Lovely Day is playing. And I'm going to uh, uh, read one stanza because I feel like it's really powerful. And I just want to like uh, present yeah, that absolutely. to our listeners. Please do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we have Bill uh, with her song playing in the background and uh, the poetic voice says, and just like that, we're singing and laughing and there's no impossible days and joy rises from the souls of her impossible sneakers and scapes as the truest voice I ever heard. And we are sky and free. We are love. Oh, I feel that there's a lot of tenderness in how this song hits and heals their soul and they regain their mutual joy. The poetic voice trusts that this father-daughter bond is as expansive as the sky and a true expression of freedom and love. It is lovely indeed. Okay, so <laughs> the other day we were talking about this in, in preparation for the interview, and I was saying that there was one poem in this anthology that actually made me cry like I was sitting there with tears streaming down my face and this is exactly the poem that i was thinking of so i think it's <laughs> funny that 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 same one jumped out to both of us you yeah, know i don't we're I don't... on the same page literally. <laughs> right <laughs> literally yeah you know yeah. i i don't have my own children but like you i i'm also a child of divorced parents and i really felt the bit when he talked about the tensions weighing on their daughter right like i'm getting choked up now thinking about it like it was seriously the poem that most resonated with me and was the most relatable to me you know in the interview i mentioned you know as someone who is not latina i still found poems in there where i could see myself or part of that that universal in the specific and this was absolutely one of them but uh beyond that i think another poem that really stood out was the one called the day a poet i looked up to clowned me um, and this one was originally published in Black Maybe. Um, we may have discussed it in the other episode. I don't remember, but like it's still, it sticks with me so much. I've, I've actually taught this one in my class before uh, when we were talking about this feeling of being in between or not belonging, right? Like too Black to be Latino, too Latino to be Black and, and that concept. And it's just the callous way in which this other poet dismisses him, right? So like when I read it, it 
it's not completely clear, but it doesn't matter if the words, oh, you're not black, black were actually said out loud, right? It's the feeling of being rejected and isolated that really stands out there. And I just, you can feel that aloneness uh, when when you read that poem. That's how I, I read it anyway. I, I just felt I was alone in that room with him just watching everyone else around him. Yeah, that's a great poem that uh, in a specific illustrates how using imperialism and exceptionalism also influence notions of blackness. And the poem makes clear how the global black diaspora is sometimes erased to keep dominant U.S. perspective. So Roberto Carlos Garcia pushes us to think beyond those uh, reductive frames. And I hope we keep seeing more of him doing that in the future with his essays that are coming out and any other future projects he has. So thanks for joining us for this episode. Remember, you too can share your thoughts with us. You can always reach out to us on social media or by email. So follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at LatinXVisions. Our email address is latinexvisions at gmail.com. We love to include your thoughts in a future episode. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a review on both Apple and Spotify if you can. We out. Seguimos a la escucha. Dale. Until next time. Mm -hmm.